Hello there. This is Volts, and I am your host, David Roberts. For as long as I've been covering climate change, it's been conventional wisdom among economists and the kind of people who aspire to please economists that the proper focus of climate policy is on demand. We must reduce demand for fossil fuels, the argument goes. Otherwise, any supply we shut down will just pop up somewhere else. Activists have always disagreed with this logic. For many of them, the fight against climate change is a fight for places, specific places with histories, peoples, and ecosystems. And every fossil fuel project is, in some way or another, an assault on a place. Over the last decade, more economists and policy wonks have come around to their way of thinking, questioning both the economic and the sociology of the demand-focused conventional wisdom. As things stand now, wealthy fossil fuel-producing countries are making grand emission reduction commitments while continuing to ramp up production. All that fossil fuel has to go somewhere. It creates its own set of commitments and investments, its own momentum. My guest today, Canadian activist Zipporah Berman, has been fighting for places since grunge and flannel were big. There is no way to do her resume justice in a short intro or else I would never get to the podcast, but here are some highlights. In the 1990s, she fought clear-cutting projects with blockades and civil disobedience. In 2000, she co-founded Forest Ethics, which uses clever communications campaigns to shame companies into using less old-growth wood. In 2004, she turned to climate change, founding her own nonprofit advocacy group, Power Up, to defend British Columbia's carbon tax. In 2010, she became co-director of Greenpeace International's 40-country climate and energy program, where she led its storied Arctic and Volkswagen campaigns. In 2015, she was appointed to the BC government's climate leadership team to advise on climate policy. In 2016, she was appointed as co-chair of the Alberta government's oil sands advisory group. She also led the effort to secure the Great Bear Rainforest Agreement, which protects more than four 40 million hectares of old-growth forest. Her activism continues today. She was just arrested in May, defending old-growth forests on unceded indigenous territories on Vancouver Island, BC. In 2019, Berman received the Climate Breakthrough Project Award from a coalition of foundations, which came with $2 million to create breakthrough global strategies on climate change. She used the money on a project she's been thinking about for a while, the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. The IPCC is clear. There are already enough fossil fuels in known reserves to blow the world past its 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature limit. Yet fossil fuel production continues to increase. Fossil fuels have become a threat to all of humanity, as nuclear weapons are. And just as with nuclear weapons, Berman believes we need a global agreement to cap their growth and ramp them down. The Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty is meant to be a template for such an agreement. Though the treaty is relatively new, it has already been signed by nine cities and subnational governments, with more than 480 organizations and over 12,000 individuals, including a wide array of academics, researchers, and scientists. I called Berman to hear more about the need to address fossil fuel supply, the motivations behind the treaty, and where it might go in the future. Zipporah, welcome to Volts. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, I seems like the last time we talked was either two or three years ago or a hundred years ago. I'm not totally can't quite. Time. Yeah, and it definitely feels like a very long time ago, but so does last week. So yes. time is time is fungible right now, yes, isn't it? Time is meaningless. Um, okay, so I want to talk to you about a bunch of stuff, including the non-proliferation, the fossil fuels non-proliferation treaty. But before that, I'd like to just hear a little bit about what pulled you into this, uh, all this stuff. You are, I know, born um, uh, into a middle-class Jewish family in London, Ontario, according to your <laughs> according That's to your true. Wikipedia, and. <laughs> Um, and went to school originally for fashion, uh, fashion design. Yes. And <laughs> you even have been doing it. You've been, dug, you've been digging far back <laughs> and even like were, uh, lauded, I think even like won some awards, like fashiony awards. And then, uh, you know, took a, took a, uh, sharp left turn. So, so what in your, in your, in your youth pulled you toward uh, environmental activism? Well, you know, I actually think the, the, the beginnings for me um, were, I was, I took a trip um, like a lot of my 
privileged generation to Europe and, you know, with a let's go Europe in oh. my hand oh, and yeah. a train ticket, you know, in <laughs> uh, my first year of university in the summer. And I was a, at the time and it just a, my dream was to go to the Acropolis. I was studying art and art history mm. and fashion arts design was because I, I had to have a career and all I wanted to do was art. <laughs> um, and, and, and that year, way back when, in the late 80s, pollution was so bad in a lot of cities in Europe, but in Athens in particular, that the Acropolis was melting. Um, uh. And I can remember, you know, hiking up to the top, and this is before all the restoration, and you could just see that the pollution on it, and it was all crumbling, and looked down on the city, and it was just covered in this yellow haze. And I got back to my youth hostel, and there was like, and I, and I remember like rubbing my face and leaving a white streak across it and coughing uh. up black goo. And I was like, I have got to get out of here. I mean, I'm Canadian. I'm, I'm used to a lot of space, a lot of air, a lot of... And my sister and I, who I was traveling with, we were like, okay, you know what? We got to go to nature. And we just picked a spot on the map and went to Germany. We're going to hike in the Hartz Mountains and drink beer. And, and we went to the Hartz Mountains. And I didn't know that most of the Hartz Mountains is dead, left standing as a testimony to acid rain. So we get off this train and like start hiking through a standing dead forest, not a bird sound, not an anything. And I... And those two days rocked my world. And I, I remember coming back to Canada and thinking, we are so lucky and being really scared. And I think environmental consciousness is, is in part one of those things where, you know, you, 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 there's a new lens and then you yeah. can't see anything else. And I, at least <laughs> I went through that phase and I seem to have never gotten out of it. And and so I started working on environmental issues. I dropped out of fashion arts design and I and I and I enrolled in, in a um, political science and environmental uh, environmental theory and environmental studies at university and that was the beginning for me and it's been a long uh, a long road since um you spent a lot of your time sort of organizing and fighting against um forest exploitation clear cutting and fossil fuel exploitation and i wanted to you know before we get to this big treaty about fossil fuels i wanted to just sort of generally touch on the idea i think it's in the climate wonk community I think it's something like conventional wisdom that the only way to really solve this problem is to go after demand, right? If people want mm -hmm. fossil fuels, if people want fossil fuels, they're going to find them and burn them. And if you, you know, if you shut down demand, it doesn't matter if people are supplying fossil fuels, they won't get bought. Whereas if you shut down a supply project and there still is demand, supply will just pop up elsewhere. I'm sure this, I'm sure you've heard oh, vari yeah. var variations on this, on this a kajillion times. So just generally speaking, why, why do you think that's wrong? Look, I, I think the theory for a long time, um, now almost 30 years, ha has been that we're going to constrain demand, you know, which is happening, obviously, more electric mm -hmm. cars, zero emission buildings, zero emission vehicles, etc. Demand's going to go down, price is going to go up, a higher price on carpet, and the markets are going to constrain supply. And in fact, talking to my own government, and that's uh, what I often get in Canada, we're not responsible for who produces or how much fossil fuels are produced, we're just responsible for emissions. And, you know, the thing about that market theory on around demand um, is that it's not working. It's not, I mean, it's not working fast enough to keep us safe. That much is clear. It, you know, in, I still actually kind of like it as a theory, you know, but, but the fact is that there are two big problems with it. One is that the markets are completely distorted by, by fossil fuel subsidies and right. now by governments out and out buying projects that the industry runs away from. So renewables, <laughs> as you know, are cheap cheaper in some places than fossil fuels. In a lot of places now, oil and gas companies operating at the bottom of the SMP, more bankruptcies in that sector than any other. Um, but these projects are still surviving, like the Trans Mountain Pipeline in my own country, Canada. It's surviving because investors ran away from it and government bought it you know, for $12 billion. <laughs> and so uh, that's because of the political influence of the fossil fuel industry and 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 because governments ha are only just starting to really grapple with the fact that they're going to actually need to deal with supply as well as demand. And the fact is, there are very few issues, if any, that I can think of, where intransigent issues where governments have had to step in that we haven't actually had to deal with both the supply and the demand side of the equation. Yeah. So, and another thing that I think is, is, is germane, especially to your case, is demand is sort of abstract in a sense. <laughs> um, you know, the sort of, and I think wonks are inclined to this kind of thinking, this sort of big picture abstraction, this kind of system of system mm -hmm. stuff. But, but fossil fuel supply fights take place on the ground 
in particular places. And so involve right. people in a way and pull people in for different reasons, or at least more, you know, a wider variety of reasons than the demand fight. So, so tell me about like your, uh, tell me about a supply fight that's been won, <laughs> that you, that you won. Like what, what, what brings people into it? Yeah, I, I will. But I want to say one thing about, you know, your places and policies thing is that as a forest activist, when I first started working in the climate movement, the thing that really, and on climate issues, mm -hmm. the thing that I really noticed is the forest and conservation movement, we fight for places. Right. We campaign about places. Right. The, the climate movement, um, you know, especially 15, 20 years ago when I really started engaging kind of late to the game, um, talks about not places, but policies. Right. And I, I'll never forget at, a, at a, a briefing with this great pollster who I think is really brilliant, Angus McAllister, and he said to me, why is it that the climate movement is always trying to sell the airplane ride on the vacation. Sell the beach. <laughs> sell where you're trying to get to. Not the not the complicated, anno annoying journey to get to it. You know, right. and I and I think that's really relevant here, right? Because we, you know, I, I don't know. I got I I have three university degrees, and I spent years trying to figure out what am I for in on climate right. change. It's like no cap and trade, no cap and trade and auction, and and then is this carbon tax? But from this benchmark date, and not that smart. Like you know, and we wonder why millions of people are not getting involved. And then when the, the, the pipeline and the coal plant or even the Heathrow Airport, you know, when, when these tangible fights start arising, people can see them in their backyard. They can see that they're bad. I mean, the problem with climate change for years has been that carbon, for the most part, carbon emissions are invisible and oil spills are not, right? This pipeline, right. you know, right now they're starting to drill under Burnaby Mountain to, and under the Fraser River to put this pipeline in. Well, that's, it's very tangible to people, right? And 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 so I've been working on now pipelines um, and oil sands issues for 10 years, a little over 10 years. And in that time, I would say we've won almost every fight. We've either stopped or delayed every single pipeline that the industry has proposed, you know, other than now the existing pipeline fights, which are Trans Mountain and Line 3. Mm -hmm. um, Enbridge Northern Gateway, dead. Keystone, get dead. Energy East, dead. These pipelines have been stopped because of citizen action, which delays the project, raises the concerns, and then both investor action as well as government policy action. Right. When, but when people, and I guess this is one of the sort of other traditional kind of uh, worries from the other side is you get people involved in a particular place, a particular fight, they're protecting a particular landscape, and they have obviously a kind of passion for that, that it's hard to generate for you know, the atmosphere, capital T, capital A, <laughs> which is which is everywhere and nowhere. But then do people go on from there? Do you know what I mean? Like, does, oh, does, does momentum I mean, build from there for larger things to, to go on to bigger things? Well, yes, the momentum builds and we should talk about that. But also the what what I've really noticed and witnessed is a personal journey people go through. The climate movement is growing because of these and, and diversifying because of these fights. You know, you think I, they pull in young people specifically better than uh, better well, than they definitely pull in young people. But uh, what I was thinking of in the back of my head was indigenous leaders that I have worked with in Canada, Northern Gateway, for example, who who started these fights because, you know, this is a rights issue. It's a human rights issues. Right. It's, a, it's issues to do with their trap lines, to do with their um, to do with their concern for water. But as they as we work together, as we're um, having discussions, as they're learning, it's a journey. And 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 now many of those same leaders are are giving some of the most passionate climate speeches I've ever heard. Mm. Um, you know, Nebraska farmers that I worked with on Keystone, they started this because of eminent domain issues. Right. Um, but I watched some of those individual individuals become passionate uh, about working on climate change. Um, and because it, it's a journey and, and they, and they, and they start to be introduced to the other aspects of the issues, et cetera. And I think it's actually a mistake that we make in all of our communications work is we keep talking about the message box and the narratives. Well, we need a narrative. We need to bring people, you know, with us. And that's, I think, what's happened through the, through the site fights. You know, I, I, this is, but might be something <laughs> a weird parallel, but one thing that occurs to me is when people talk about music, like lyrics that are very specific, like, you know, Jane broke my heart at the high school dance or whatever, can, can resonate in a universal way, can almost be more universal 
than if you try to write something kind of more generic and broad. You know what I mean? Like the mm-hmm. the specificity right. of it is like a gateway to the to to the universal. And I sort of think of like land fights and exploitation fights the same way. Like the Nebraska farmers, like oh, this fight is happening all over the place, right? Like there are people who love land and places all over the place in this same fight. Right, and they motivate people because they're not about information about data and statistics. Of course, right. there has to be a foundation about of knowledge. Right. But what resonates with people are the values. This isn't fair. This isn't right that this is happening to this local community, that they face the dangers or the cleanup from the oil development that's going to be left or the toxins, you know, and then there's a journey around, well, wait a minute, why do these oil and gas companies get to profit off this when we know that it's killing us? Mm -hmm. And not just at the local site level, you know, but because of the contribution to climate change. And so what we know, I think, uh, from decades of social movement theory and psychological research is that what what motivates people is triggering values, Mm -hmm. um, but also is that there is an opportunity to do something. Right. Yes. It's not, yes. you know, education doesn't, doesn't motivate opportunity motivates agency. Yes. Having yeah. some sense of control. And then, so what happens? I mean, one of the sort of uh, areas of kind of, that makes me both anxious about these things, but also is like an opportunity for really some of the most uh, beautiful stuff you could ever see is like when the indigenous people of Northern Canada meet the Nebraska farmers, right? Like meet mm-hmm. the, 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 the people in the Congo fighting oil projects there. So have you seen, um, you know, these, these, these supply fights, I think, unlike demand fights, which tend to be fought exclusively by wonks and, and sort of like wonky NGOs, these, these supply fights bring in a really wide, wide, wide diversity of people. Of people. Yeah. And like, what does that look like when those people hook up with one another? Like what, what's it it's like to so watch them to try to work things out? Um, it's, it's, an, it's fascinating. It's joyful. It is also painful. Um, like I just, so I, one of the things that I did when I was working predominantly on, on, on tar sands and, and pipelines is, is, uh, start to bring together people because I realized, you know, whether you're in Nebraska, whether you're in Northern British Columbia, you know, you're often working or fighting the same companies, same right, oil companies, right. same pipeline companies, same strategies, same messaging. You're mm-hmm. you're you're struggling with the same regulatory or, or similar regulatory issues, but they weren't talking to each other. The movement wasn't learning from each other. Mm. It was very disparate. And so I started convening these gatherings, hundred people at a time, first domestically in the U.S. and Canada, and then eventually internationally through a, a network that I helped create called the Global Gas and Oil Network. But I have memories of, you know, sitting at a retreat center, you know, watching an indigenous chief from a remote community that really had not engaged with other folks like this, with, you know, a Nebraska farmer and um, and a union leader, um, (laughs) you know, and then a climate policy wonk from NRDC. And then we've just finished dinner and they're all getting into the hot tub. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? You're over there (laughs) chewing your fingernails. And and some great and fascinating collaborations happened because of that. Um, We all learned from each other. And there were huge blowouts. Like, you know, just because there because people had arrived with a different purpose and not not really different purpose. Like they were all there to fight that pipeline and fight industrial extraction well, and like all the, these the, things. The Nebraska farmer is 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 about is about private property rights. Right. Like that's their lens. Yeah, exactly. And then the, sort of the indigenous chief is coming out from a completely different viewpoint yeah. and trying to find like what is the Venn diagram overlap there where we can work together. That's just so fraught. Oh, yeah. And 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 it, and it was like a little. In some ways, actually, though, it was a microcosm of the debates, right? Like we we right. were we were fiercely debating, you know, which issues are most important and how do you talk about this issue and who talks about the issue and right. what are we asking for? And, you know, what if the government says yes to this, but says no to this right. indigenous rights issue? And how do we, you know, and as a movement, we were grappling with all those questions. And it's almost like we were testing it out before we went public, you know, and then <laughs> and then we were learning from each other and and quite frankly, unlearning our own right. biases and, and doing the deep work of decolonization and, 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 and understanding our own privilege and trying to figure that out. And in the process of doing all of that, um, we reached, reached some pretty important agreements, which I think you see in the campaigns over the mm. last many years, the, a, a commitment to step back for a lot of white folks and, 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 raise, and help raise indigenous voices and indigenous perspectives. 
Mm. Um, a commitment to, to try and find resources for grassroots groups on the ground right. who, instead of it just being the big group saying right. what the issues were, all, all of those things. I, I think the movement has strengthened and diversified as a result of, of the site fights. Oh, that's that's interesting. And do you think there's something like, you know, this is something else that I sort of wrestle with in my head. Do you think there is something like a global movement against fossil fuel exploitation forming or possible because you know as you say yes. like every site fight is different every place is different every and, and in many sense the values that people bring to these things are very very different so what what is the connecting thread that might make a global movement and what would it look like so i think i think it's actually what does it look like because i think we are creating it so uh, there's been a whole bunch of us that have been consciously for the past five or six years, trying to connect the threads and trying to figure out how to have global conversations and, and to bring people together, to bring indigenous groups in the heart of the Amazon into a strategy conversation around, you know, what should we be doing um, at the United Nations um, relative to fossil fuels? Uh, what, what about the subsidies campaigns? How do we do finance strategies? You know, it used to be that it were just like some environmental groups, maybe grassroots groups who were having these conversations. And now you see more and more voices coming in and, and, people from different countries connecting to it through the Global Gas and Oil Network, uh, but also now uh, through through the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty Initiative and, and campaign that we've been developing. And the, and the thread um, really is that the moment when we realized that we had to stop playing whack-a-mole, one pipeline, this pipeline, mm -hmm. this project in Argentina, this offshore drilling in Norway, and we had to say no. We had to say, no, the science is really clear. We have to stop fossil fuel expansion. And this was hard. This was a fight inside the climate movement, especially with climate policy wonks and with philanthropic foundations. Hmm. Like during the Keystone campaign, we had philanthropic foundations and other NGOs coming to us and saying, you, you actually stop have to stop this campaign because it's not a climate campaign. It's diverting attention from the important oh, climate really? issues. <laughs> yes, oh, I, yeah, I, for I, sure. I, I heard many, many people wonks make similar similar arguments. Yeah. It's funny in retrospect, I guess. Yeah, not so funny when you live through it, but it, it, it is. <laughs> but that was happening all over the world. And so what we did is we found we found our peers. Like, so we, a number of us, um, Steve Kretzman from Oil Change International, Hannah McKinnon and myself and a bunch of others, we went and consciously made a list of the hundred people we knew who were at the forefront of oil and gas fights uh, around the world. And then added to that list, a bunch of academics that we knew were thinking about supply side policy mm -hmm. and um, indigenous leaders. And then that was when you actually used to meet people in person. At the time, there was a huge battle going on for the Lofoten um, uh, offshore drilling. Uh, in Norway. Um, so we kind of cast about and said, who wants to host this big strategy retreat? And the groups in Norway did. And so um, Hannah McKinn and I facilitated a, a five-day retreat for 100 people um, in Lofoten, Norway. And that was the beginning <laughs> of this international network. That's where we released the Lofoten Declaration, which is the first global declaration calling for an end to fossil fuel expansion everywhere mm. um, and a global just transition. And that, and in my mind, that's a kind of the moment when things changed, when we started really looking right. at supply side pathways and the need for international cooperation and more work on constraining fossil fuels. Right. Well, that's a great segue then into the, the treaty. The, I wanted to start with, because um, this is kind of what blew my mind a little bit when you first told me about this stuff, uh, when you were first thinking about it and putting it together, which is, uh, which regards our kind of state of knowledge about fossil fuels in the world, like where, like where they're being dug up and how much and who's doing it. And, you know, I guess I just... Maybe in the back of my head, I don't know why now looking back on it, but I guess I just sort of assumed it like we know that there's a somewhere that's written down like some people keep. Of course, people are keeping track of that. <laughs> like, but yeah. but no, <laughs> turns out, no. turns out not. So start maybe with the registry idea and just kind of tell us about like, what is the state of knowledge currently about global fossil fuel production? Well, you know, the, the first time I read a kind of roundup of who's producing what, at least on oil and gas, um, and how much is planned production, because we, we started thinking, okay, well, so if the scientists and even Mark Kearney is out there saying we have to keep two thirds in the, of fossil fuels in the ground, right. 
How much are we currently planning on producing? I also thought it would be an easy question to answer. And what we now know is that countries are responsible for submitting emissions data to the UN and domestically, right. and that's all easy to find. Um, if you want to count up today who's producing what and how much, you have to buy the data from Rystad or Wood McKenzie. And that's oh, really? in fact what Oil Change International has been doing for years in producing its sky's limit reports. That's huh. what Stockholm Environment Institute is 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 doing in, in producing the production gap report. So most governments themselves don't even know what's being produced in there or, or don't have anywhere that they counted up what's being produced um, and how much. No kidding. Um, so these private databases are the only places where that information exists? If you dig deep at a national government level, you can find it. And there are great experts out there like Pete Erickson from Stockholm Environment Institute right. and others who can do this. If you're an average person or even, it turns out, as I've discussed in several countries, a minister, you can't find it. <laughs> Wow. And you don't know what's being produced. So intransigent issues like this that are global issues, um, nuclear weapons, landmines, etc. The, the first piece in a global reckoning um, it is, is accountability and transparency. In fact, that would be the first piece at a national level as well. Right. Like, and we don't have transparency um, or accountability. We don't even have a comprehensive database of how much coal, oil, and gas reserves, resources, and production is happening globally at any given time. It's not even accessible to decision makers, let alone publicly accessible. And that's the basis of this idea, which we're now producing a prototype for, called the Global Registry of Fossil Fuel Production, was that we can't count up the carbon budget. We can't assess the potential lock-in mm -hmm. of fossil fuel infrastructure and fossil fuels if we don't know how much is being produced mm -hmm. um, or who's producing it. We can't hold anyone accountable. Um, on that side of the ledger. So, so the first thing, the first critical piece in this puzzle was the production gap report that the Stockholm Environment Institute produced with the United Nations Environment Program, ISD and others. And it's that report that started crunching the global numbers and said for the first time, you know, we're currently on track to produce 120% more fossil fuels than the world can ever safely burn under 1.5 degree scenario. And that, in fact, we already have enough oil, gas, and coal either above ground or under production to take us past two degrees. So, wow. so the majority of the world's financial, political, and intellectual capital at this moment in history is going to produce three products, oil, gas, and coal, which are responsible for 80% of the emissions trapped in our atmosphere, three products which we can't use if we want to have a stable climate. <laughs> So you, you, you put out this request for proposals on the registry because I imagine yeah. there's I imagine there's quite a few, you know, logistical and technical issues to work out and format and access and how to build it. it, it what's the kind of state of the registry right now? Did somebody win that? Is somebody yeah. out there working yeah, on did. it? <laughs> what was what was really exciting is is we had um, a lot of submissions, some of the biggest energy agencies and analysts from around the world, and um, none of them we thought alone could really do it properly because it's really hard to do. And so what we ended up doing is um, starting basically negotiations between Global Energy Monitor, Ted Nace, and um, Carbon Tracker Initiative. Mm. Because they both harvest data in totally different ways. And partially this needs to be tested. Like, so what you need to do is you need to, you need to scrape data over here from industry. You need to scrape data from governments. Right. You need to actually do, you know, and... Originally, we thought, oh, it's okay. We can just rise out and would McKenzie already do this, but we can't use their data because it's, you have to be very careful because they, they're a company. I actually think they're probably not very happy with us because we're really having a, having a go at their business model here. Yeah, um, if you succeed in this, it's going <laughs> to take a whack off <laughs> some big revenue streams for some big companies, I think. Yes. Um, so when we launch it, um, which will be the prototype at COP26, it will be the first open source, comprehensive and detailed database of coal, oil and gas reserves, resources and production globally. Um, that is both publicly accessible and is starting to, we think, have some buy in from governments and other major institutions. Mm. So it, it will be a, a quite a sophisticated but interactive and publicly accessible database. And it's on its way, currently being uh, produced. I mean, I, I guess I wonder with some of the sort of um, maybe poorer fossil fuel producing countries that don't have the sort of civil apparatus or, or, or maybe don't have governments that are interested in, in transparency and stuff like that. Not that the big rich governments are that interested in it, but but I, I'm wondering, like, is there any 
way to enforce this? Is there any data that like are off limits that you have to sort of fight to get? Or like, is all the data just sort of out there somewhere? And this is just mostly about gathering it. Like if, if, if Congo, for instance, wanted to hide how much fossil fuel it's producing or obscure in some way, could they or is or or is well, it well considering uh you know the majority of oil for example is from national companies um mm. you know maybe um <laughs> but you know and and I'd, I'd honestly have to talk to carbon tracker and global energy monitor and see how they're doing on that front but they were pretty confident that with what industry releases combined with this with the data scrapes that they're doing from what government has in its databases um, that they could provide a pretty significant picture and and we'll know with the with the prototype yeah it'll be so interesting um, but it's the first time that anyone has ever tried um to build it basically and to and to make it a, a available to the public um but actually what we're finding with the with both the registry and the fossil fuel treaty is that um, it's actually governments in, in the global south are pretty interested in this type of transparency once we show them the data that uh, shows that the majority of expansion for fossil fuels, the far majority, well over 70% of the expansion planned for fossil fuels in the next five years um, is in the global north. It's in wealthy countries. Oh, interesting. The very countries that are uh, most vocally talking about climate change, right? I mean, that's right. <laughs> the ones that's that right. are. Uh, that's right. Most... In, in fact, the far majority of, of what is planned globally um, on oil and gas is in the US and Canada. Yeah. Hey. Uh, so let's talk then about the fossil fuel non proliferation treaty. Tell me um, sort of conceptually, where did this idea come out of and sort of what's it based on and sort of what's the necessity for it? And then kind of what do you want it to do or say? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the, the idea emerged from some of those conversations that I told you about we were having in Norway and, mm -hmm. and, and other places. And what we realized is that every country um, was responding in the same way to this question of how do we keep two thirds of fossil fuels in the ground? Pretty much every nation state whether it was Norway or the UK or Canada or Argentina, they were all saying it's not our problem. We don't deal with production. Right. Um, and obviously we couldn't um, because then we wouldn't be competitive and there would be leakage. If we don't produce it, someone else will. Yes, exactly. Um, so these are all, all, all the questions, all the answers of why they couldn't. <laughs> and yet everyone's saying, we know we have to. And meanwhile, we are locking in you know, all of this production and all of this money and time is going mm -hmm. to either fighting these projects or producing these projects that we can't use. And meanwhile, the clock is ticking on the electrification and the infrastructure that mm -hmm. we actually need to be spending money on. And so it was, we started looking at what we could learn from other big intransigent problems like this, the Montreal Protocol. Um, we studied mm -hmm. the Landmine Treaty. We studied the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. We studied um, the Nuclear Weapons Agreements. And the idea started emerging, well, if one country can't do it alone, like if it really is this kind of dilemma, you know, that, that no one will do it without the other country, then that's right. the point where you have international agreements. That's what treaties are for. It's, it literally is a great analogy, the Nuclear Weapons Treaty. And some academics started studying it. I think the first peer-reviewed paper to come out proposing a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty were, was from Peter Newell and Andrew Sims out of the UK. They they are now on the steering committee um, of our initiative, uh, fossilfueltreaty.org. And I read their paper and I thought, yes, this is what we've been talking about for ages. Mm. And so I just called them up. I didn't know them yet. Um, they, we've been to some of the same conferences. And I said, look, let, let's create an initiative and a working group and start talking about whether this is really real and what, can, what do we need to learn? What do we need to study? And we pulled together a group of former diplomats and academics and activists and from around the world and started talking about it. And then that summer, out of the blue, pretty much, I won the Climate Breakthrough Award, which oh, is yeah. an award where right. they give you $2 million to for global climate solutions that no one has ever tried before. Well, that was that was helpful. Not really, good timing. <laughs> and, and like, I, and you know, first of all, no pressure, just solve climate change. <laughs> and I, and, and so I was like, you know what, I, this is, this is the first time in well over a decade that I've ever worked on anything which is commensurate with the scale of the problem. Mm. And and sure, it, it's bold, audacious, and and you know what? We kind of need bold, audacious right now. We're racing against the clock, and we keep not meeting our targets. 
every COP I've ever, every UN negotiations I've ever been to um, or heard about, at the end of every one, there's a press release that comes out that says, well, you know, we've done this, but we failed to address climate change and the world's still burning. <laughs> and so I just thought, let's try this. And then it took off. I mean, it's been about two years, I guess, since that, a little bit over. And um, it's just taken off. It's just grown so fast. And I think now with the IEA coming out um, last oh, month right, with right. the 1.5 net zero scenario, acknowledging that right. if we are trying to meet net zero, we have to stop fossil fuel expansion. We're actually the kid on the block that for years has been studying how to stop right. fossil fuel expansion. Because we all know that we need to do it now. And there's evidence showing that we need to do it. Um, but, um, you know, I think everyone is now going to start looking for a pathway to how. And part of it is finance, you know, the divestment campaigns. And, and of course, a huge part of it is finance. But again, we can't leave it up to the markets, not just because mm. the markets are distorted, but because the markets aren't going to address equity and justice. Mm. And at the basis of the concept of the fossil fuel nonproliferation treaty initiative is that we are going to need international cooperation in order to stop fossil fuel expansion everywhere. Mm. And that if we're going to do it um, in a way uh, that is equitable, that addresses uh, injustice, we have to have the hard conversations like debt forgiveness. Right. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of work in the Amazon with Ecuadorian uh, indigenous nations in the Amazon. And I mean, they're facing new oil drilling in large part, uh, uh, actually entirely, just to feed Ecuador's debt, right? A lot of it is actual debt for oil swaps with China. Oh, so interesting. there's a number of countries like that, right? Argentina, Ecuador, many countries that are, that are starting new fossil fuel expansion, not because they're going to use the products, not because they... Huh. You know, they're just doing it to feed their debt. So, yeah, so equity and justice is a huge part of this. And I think one of the reasons we need a fossil fuel nonproliferation treaty is because some countries, especially wealthy countries, can put in place some policies at a national or subnational level to constrain fossil fuel expansion. Um, but if we are going to constrain fossil fuel expansion fast enough in the time that we have to support actually moving to zero and beyond, we're going to need international cooperation. And right now, the Paris Accord does not provide the mechanisms for the conversations that we need. Yeah. On, on the equity subject, you know, there are estimates that for some of the sort of African, just for example, African oil and gas revenues, you know, a, a successful green energy transition would devastate their oil and gas revenues. And really... It, hurt them. That's a, that's a large chunk of their, <laughs> of their national income in some cases. So what is the, I mean, we can be conscious of equity and conscious of, 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 the, of the disparate effects, but what would an international treaty or organization do about that exactly? Like what is the, what is the solution to countries that are now sort of on the poorer side? And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the same dilemma um, like Canada or the U.S. has internally. Like there are some parts of the U.S. where the economy is extremely dependent on fossil fuels and would demonstrably be hurt if they went away. So internationally, it seems like that's even trickier. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, what, what's the solution to that? Um, well, part of what we're doing right now is um, just starting to pull apart what are the barriers um, mm. in the global south and really starting to do deep dives and understand the situations in particular countries. And so the Treaty initiative is is made up of organizations from around the world, and we have core partners in each region. So mm. PowerShift Africa, um, Third World Network, Asia, Asia Project for Debt and Development. These are groups that are now um, doing deep um, analysis and case studies of in Malaysia, of Patronus and its influence mm. and its and the issues and. And we're also working with Shivan Kartha um, and Greg Mutit, who have written kind of a seminal paper on equity and fossil fuel uh, production. And they basically look at each, a whole bunch of countries and what is their GDP, what is their jobs, what is their dependency right now? And so what right. are their barriers uh, going to be? So we're doing the analysis, pulling apart the barriers. But what a treaty would do is, first of all, when countries, if countries agree to the end of expansion, and, and that is that provides a, a roadmap 
So right now, it's really strange. And I, in fact, when I first started looking at this stuff, I thought I was kind of crazy mm. because, because we're all talking about phasing out fossil fuels and you know, everyone's talking about 100% renewable. And so I started doing the research to find out, well, what is my country's own plan for production? <laughs> we, don't, we don't actually plan for the production of fossil fuels to go down. Mm, Canada, you mean specifically or, or anyone? <laughs> Canada specifically, but pretty much any country other than now Denmark, with it, who has now actually announced no new expansion and we're planning for a managed ramp down and phase out of production. And so if you go and look at the NDCs of in, you know, what countries file in the Paris Agreement um, and look at any major producing country, US and UK, Canada, they are saying we're going to go 100% renewable and they're saying we commit to these emissions targets but they're not actually saying what their, that their fossil fuel production will go down. And that's because the fossil fuel industry has been working for decades to try and convince governments that they're gonna separate production from emissions, that we are going to eventually have the technology competitive at scale, CCS, CCUS, et cetera, right. so that we can keep producing and reduce emissions. I mean, the evidence doesn't show that, and we've run out of time for that in a lot of ways, but so they don't actually, we don't actually plan right now to end expansion. So the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is designed on the pillars of nuclear proliferation treaty. So first of all, end the expansion. Mm. Second of all, manage a global phase out of fossil fuel production. And, and the third pillar is ensure peaceful and just and equitable transition. So right now we have research, um, diplomatic efforts and discussions going on under each of those uh, three pillars. And, and, and our vision is for a world where vulnerable communities are offered an alternative pathway that we actually mm. plan for this instead mm -hmm. of just leaving it up to the markets. Um, and poor countries have, will have to be supported by wealthy, wealthier countries to transition away from fossil fuels. And right now in all of those countries, they're under heavy pressure with capital coming in still from fossil fuel companies to do more fossil fuel expansion. Right. And they're under heavy pressure, many of them, to continue feeding their, their debt. And so it's this, it's this really strange disconnect we have mm. right now in the climate debate where energy and infrastructure and fossil fuel discussions are over here. And then, and then we have our climate targets over right. here. Well, I wanted to ask about that last, the last point, because, you know, even if you um, take supply out of the picture and just look at the sort of traditional discussion around climate change and traditional treaties and Paris and everything else, even even through that lens, it's clear that if we don't want them to emit so much that we shoot past our targets, wealthy countries are going to have to send money <laughs> to poorer countries, right? I mean, it's a big, it's a it's a huge, you know, it's been part of the COP talks forever, always super contentious. You know, we set up this green fund or, or allegedly set up this green fund. But, you know, if you've been following the reporting on that, it's not, mm -hmm. we're not doing it. <laughs> the, the rich countries are not putting money into that fund. So it almost seems like to me, that's like the part where I look around in vain for signs of optimism, <laughs> because if we're trying to pay them to emit less and to produce less fossil fuels, right? That's just a lot of money. That would be a huge, it would be a huge wealth transfer to get that going. And it is a lot of money, but, but there's a cascading series of impacts at the point that a country acknowledges that it's going to stop fossil fuel expansion. Hmm. Um, so if you are going to stop the production of fossil fuels, then that also means that the tax breaks and the subsidies that are going to the fossil fuel industry don't make sense. Because the reason they need them right now is their, their margins are so small, it's cost so much uh, to produce those fossil fuels and to expand the, those productions. But for, let's take Canada, for, for example, a fracking project or an oil science project with infrastructure already in that has a declining field, well, it doesn't need a lot of money and support. It's the infrastructure that is the issue, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's billions, if not over a trillion dollars. In Canada alone, it's at least $2.7 billion a year just in direct and indirect subsidies. And it's not, um, and that doesn't even include doing things like buying a $12 billion pipeline that will likely become a stranded <laughs> asset. So there is money. Um, right. There is quite a lot of money. And that's just on subsidies, let alone what we're, what we're spending 
um, in, in cleanup, cleanup of both mm. spills, billions of dollars, and cleanup of, of liability and, and, and dead wells and leaking wells and methane and billions of dollars that governments are spending right now into um, CCS uh, research and pilot projects uh, around the world. And, and we haven't even started talking about health costs. And we know from the data that's coming out that and fossil fuel use and development, especially actually in the global south, is costing millions, if not billions, in health costs. Because it's toxic, right? We've always right. known that. Sure, we've benefited from this industry. Lots of great, nice people work in this industry. Now we know, like nuclear weapons, that the expansion of it is killing us. And that's the parallel. And that's, I think, the beauty of the treaty that we haven't really talked about is that the climate movement hasn't had a global demand to governments since well before Paris, except for, you know, increased ambition and, you know, complicated things that actually don't mean anything to the average person. Higher targets, higher targets. It's, it's always what, the what targets. Does that, what does that even mean? And what the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty does, I think, is start to shift the norm around fossil fuels. Because we've all mm. grown up with the idea that fossil fuels are prosperity, that they were keeping mm. you know, the lights on. And in, and, in, and in countries or places like Texas or Alberta, where, where you see production, it's also what keeps your hospitals open and your roads paved. Um, in <laughs> fact, that's not true anymore. Um, oh, yeah? And, and no, because in, 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 in both jurisdictions, actually, and, and in which this is a trend in most wealthy countries, we're, we're spending more money uh, for fossil fuel production than fossil fuel production um, uh, provides uh, to a subnational or to a nation state because oh, of the liability costs, because of the lack of um, the royalties going down, um, subsidies going up, et cetera. We're, we're paying them to extract and pollute now. That's what's <laughs> happening. Jeez. Uh, so is the idea, I mean, right now this is sort of like... Uh, I guess, sort of people and, and NGOs and academic organizations sort of endorsing this or signing on to it. I, I guess the idea eventually is that countries sign, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. and, so, and so who's... We decided to start at cities. And the reason oh, we decided, decided to start at cities is because cities are not as influenced politically right. um, by the fossil fuel right. industry. Um, but also historically, actually, that's where treaties start. Look at nuclear. I'm old enough to remember you driving into a city, there'd be a sign, nuclear free city. That was part <laughs> of the campaign, um, you know, for nuclear weapons ban. Well, that's kind of also where the the left is, right? I mean, that's where sort of like progressive minded mm -hmm. people live <laughs> is, in, and it, is in the it's cities. it's taken off like wildfire. Like we, we launched publicly the idea of the fossil fuel treaty um, at Climate Week last year in September. And um, by October, November, Vancouver had became the first city in the world to pass a motion unanimously to endorse the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty and the mm. council and the mayor to send a letter to the premier, to Prime Minister Trudeau, asking him to start to work on the treaty and international cooperation on stopping all fossil fuel expansion. Um, Vancouver was followed less than a month later, I think, by Barcelona, uh, recently LA. My, my two favorite cities. You're listing, right? you're listing my favorite cities. But it, it just goes on and on. There were, there were three cities in Australia this week. There were two cities um, in, in the UK last week. There, uh, Cal now LA and Hayward, California. There's a motion already tabled in, in New York. So the city's work is really taking off, and I keep hearing about new campaigns that have started. So we created a campaign hub that has all the information mm. that we could produce around what is the treaty, and and basically now groups around the world are starting to make it theirs. Um, mm -hmm. So I know that Friends of the Earth Sweden is campaigning in Swedish on fossil fuel treaty in 17 cities. Mm. Youth groups around the world are really taking it up. and. We now have COICA, the uh, indigenous, the Association of All Indigenous Nations in the Amazon, who have endorsed and who are starting to work on the fossil fuel treaty. It, you know, it's really starting to become a movement. 400 plus organizations who are now endorsing and starting to campaign on the fossil fuel treaty, and I think it's because it brings together those issues that we were talking about at the beginning. You know, it's tangible. Mm -hmm. um, people can see. Yeah, I don't want line three, but you know what? I also don't want drilling in the heart of the Amazon. So enough already. <laughs> um, and let's start focusing on the good stuff instead of always focusing on the bad stuff. So it, who will be the first country? <laughs> 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 and, and, and when? <laughs> I, it's, 
it, it it's hard to know. Um, I you know I I really do think it will likely be more vulnerable nations mm. because the meetings that I've been in, when you talk to countries in the global south and show them the data that the majority of the new expansion of oil, gas, and coal is in wealthy countries, and you know the science of the production gap report and how we're producing 120 percent more than we can burn, they're angry. Mm. And and I so I think look, some people say we. It could take 10 years to get a treaty. We may never get a treaty. And I think the journey matters here. Right. And if you look at other treaties, nuclear waste, et cetera, nuclear weapons, the journey mattered. And we're creating a new conversation. And imagine the point when, you know, some vulnerable country, you know, stands up on the UN floor and says, what do you mean, Norway? I saw it here in this global registry that you're about to produce this. <laughs> I think what we're going to start to see is bilateral negotiations on fossil fuel production, some multilateral agreements on pieces of it, debt forgiveness, et cetera, working its way up towards um, a treaty. And, and in fact, I think it's already started. Yeah, I have to say uh, it's slightly disheartening that so much of the production is in the U.S. and the U.S. has traditionally... Uh, not been super jazzed about international treaties, especially uh, lately. Yeah, but, but that's okay. Um, you know, in in the case of the TPNW, you know, this was a that that's a, a nuclear weapons treaty that was led mm -hmm. by non-nuclear armed states, hmm. and it stigmatized and banned nuclear weapons. It changed the narrative right. globally about nuclear weapons, and then every country had to start really being held accountable to what they were stockpiling and how they were going to reduce it. So I, I think that it's very likely that that's how the treaty will emerge here as well. By marking out a legal pathway, by identifying the barriers, starting to create political will. And let's not forget that it was Kamala Harris during the campaign trail that talked about a reverse OPEC. That's essentially what a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty would be. Hmm. It, it was Biden that talked about publicly during the debates about needing to phase out oil. I think things are actually, I think there are tipping point moments in history where the technology, the finance, the political ideas and come together being pushed by social movements. And, and I think on fossil fuels, we're living that tipping point now. Yeah, it's really, you know, the future is so opaque to me <laughs> these, these days, <laughs> I guess, like to everyone. But you can really envision, it's not hard to envision the U.S. becoming a bit of a... Um, kind of a pariah on this, you know, if enough momentum builds and enough countries sign on, like I really can't envision the U.S. signing on, but I can envision it becoming isolated. And I'm trying to imagine, like, how would we here in the U.S. respond to that uh, with with grace and generosity? Hmm. <laughs> well, look, you know, California just became the first subnational in the world with major uh, fossil fuel development to announce that an end, to, at least an end date, right, to fracking True. and new oil development. You know, so so that is that I think that's huge, and that's that's the beginning of recognizing that constraining and managing how much fossil fuels we produce and for how long is part of the climate debate. We have to start creating policy roadmaps for both supply and demand. And I think that's the seed uh, for the conversation uh, in the U.S. And given the immense opposition in, in Texas and New Mexico to, to what's happening in the Permian Basin and, and also how bad <laughs> the finance, the financial outlook yeah, looks in the yeah. long term, you know, I, I don't know. And you know, a lot of these, and a lot of these uh, unpaid for cleanups uh, popping exactly. up more and more and more often. I mean, it's, it's, it's brutal out there on the on those Texas natural gas fields, that's going to be billions of dollars. And of course it's not the fracking companies who are going to pay no. for that. No, it's taxpayers. And I think people are also waking up to the fact that, huh, there are some alternatives. I'm starting to see them right here. Oh, look, there's an electric car. I can see it now. Right. And maybe we don't have to be using all these fossil fuels and, oh, that'd be cheaper if my house was using better efficiency and then I didn't need to buy so much. Or maybe I wouldn't have to burn my back fence uh, <laughs> to, to stay warm during a cold snap uh, if we had if we had more renewables. The solutions clearly are are, are, are more reliable 
you know, even in the, at the moment when we need them to be more reliable because they're distributed and all of the reasons that we've seen in the Texas analysis. And they're safer and healthier. And again, that data, it, new data came out this year from the Harvard study on the impact that, that fossil fuels are killing millions of people every year because they're toxic. And so there's a, there's a lot of good reasons to start thinking about fossil fuels in a different way and, and to, to address those, that anxiety that we have about, well, you know, but are we going to freeze in the dark? We're not going to freeze in the dark. And we have, we have enough fossil fuels already above ground or under production to meet the world's needs while we transition to a cleaner future. Right. And that's, that's the part that, you know, we're just really starting to understand. And so I think that the point that people start realizing that and start getting excited about what that beach looks like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, then by way of wrapping up, then let's talk briefly about the beach. You know, you, you've said before the sort of the fossil fuel model, not only in just in terms of fuel or energy, but just in terms of social and economic organization is very centralized. It lends itself to concentrations of power Mm -hmm. Which, which of course, then lend themselves to, you know, graft and 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 bribery of governments and all the, and all the rest and 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 the little people, you know, getting screwed, getting the ass end of all these cleanups and not benefiting. You know, I I can't tell you how many stories I've read now about like, oh, this North Dakota town thought they were going to be rich forever. And then <laughs> fracking left, and now all, it turns they're all out then they're now their poor. water is poisoned, and they have higher cancer rates, and um, yeah, they don't and have any none more of the money. wealth. Yeah, none of the wealth stayed behind. So, so just maybe by way of wrapping up, let's just say a few words about sort of what's your kind of vision of what comes next after after that, and why and why is it better? Not only, I mean, there's obviously not dying of <laughs> inhaling poison, you know, that's a bonus. But like, uh, how else do you see sort of clean energy reshaping kind of some of those social and economic structures? It's a huge question, it by the way. It's a huge question. Thank you. Um, just a softball for the end. Yeah, Thanks, just the very Dave. end there. Just quickly describe the, the coming world. <laughs> the coming world. Um, reducing our dependence on fossil fuels, not just the use of them, but the production of them, changes everything. It changes our daily lives, and it changes the daily lives of millions of people. You know, we're no longer fighting asthma. We're no longer fighting, you know, the rare... The what should be rare cancers, which are now um, massive in downstream communities and communities near, especially communities of color near refineries and indigenous communities are in the heart of the, the production in remote areas from the Amazon to Canada. And I think having spent a bunch of time in some of those incredibly visionary communities in the heart of the Amazon and in northern Alberta in Canada, where they are saying no to the oil extraction that is literally killing their communities. And, and they, they show me, you know, the, the fish with lesions and the, mm -hmm. and, and they, and I get introduced to the, the people in their communities who are dying of cancer. And then they show me the renewable energy facilities that they're building. Mm -hmm. And they're so excited about them and the whole community is working on them and they're plugging in their cell phones to their solar panels. And they're literally celebrating, doing um, traditional dances, uh, circling the solar panels in the Beaver Lake Creek community in the, in the heart of the Amazon. I watched a shaman fire up his laptop after he plugged it into his new solar panel and he, the beaming look on his face. Oh, that's, that's good. That's good changes. footage right there. You gotta... people, people get to control um, the power that fuels their daily lives and uh, they know that it, it's not going to have the direct health impacts on them. Um, it, it's safer and it's cleaner. And, you know, that's the thing about, you know, a, a, a solar spill. You know, <laughs> It's just <laughs> right. a sunny day, right? And, <laughs> right. That's, and, and that's the best image I think that I can leave you with about what the future <laughs> looks like. But I think the work that we're doing now on the fossil fuel treaty is that we're not going to get there just by the local efforts. And we're not going to get mm -hmm. there in time um, to have a, sta a planet stable enough where we're not just dealing with constant disasters. If we're going to do that, we need international cooperation. And that's why we have to call on our governments to do this. Right. Great. Okay. Well, um, final thing then. I know uh, this pandemic has probably been rough on Canadians like everybody else, but one thing that you did have going for you is that you locked out 
all the Americans for a while. So <laughs> I'm sure it's been a respite, but uh, I'm ready to come up and visit. So when are you guys going to let me back in? <laughs> I don't know. I, apparently next week there's new announcements um, from Trudeau on the borders. So it, it may be soon. I mean, Canada... We had a rough start on vaccines, quite frankly, um, yeah. but we're doing really well now. I mean, 70 percent of the of the adult population is now vaccinated, at least one, many two. And so I expect that, um, you know, at some point this summer, um, they're going to start loosening uh, border regulations and things are going to start opening up. Awesome. All right. Well, I can't wait to uh, see all you all again. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks so much for taking the time, Zeb. This has been this has been really fun. Thank you. Bye.